are just two more weeks until polling day in politics and eternity. So Inside Briefing is back for another week of working out what is really going on. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The party manifestos are out, or in the Brexit Party's case, what it calls its contract with the people. Pages of promises, charts, an array of fonts and photos that show off the very best of do-it-yourself publishing. So what do these documents actually tell us about what a future government might do? There's a lot of Brexit in there. At least in the Conservatives, Labour's not quite so keen to talk about it. But both manifestos make the next stage of the UK's negotiations with the EU sound easy. Spoiler, it won't be. We'll take a closer look. There's a wall of money too. This year is the battle of public spending, but who's really going to pay? And on that note, does telling the truth in politics really matter anymore? That includes truth about numbers. We talked to Will Moy, the director of Full Fact, the independent fact-checking outfit, about the challenge of keeping track of the claims and counterclaims and who is actually being straight with the voters. On today's podcast, we've also got Giles Wilkes, an IFG senior fellow and a former advisor to Theresa May and Vince Cable. Let me just ask you, your Twitter handle used to say you were recovering from your time in yeah. 10 Downing Street, and it doesn't anymore. Have you recovered? Yes, I, I mean, it, the recovery was several several different aspects to it. It's a shock turning on the TV and seeing your old, much-missed workplace suddenly populated by a whole bunch of new people looking mm. like they're throwing the, the furniture around and changing everything, particularly when a lot of friends are still there. And the idea that these friends who were working very, very closely with are now having to report to other people on another agenda, I found that... Uh, an outrage that I f- found it really hard to get around emotionally that these people because civil servants are brilliant they the fact that they can do this for whoever they need to work for is something that the um the people for whom they work uh s- struggle to get over that's the thing I needed to recover from most it wasn't the most appalling job in terms of hours or anything but psychologically being on the outside again takes some doing well good to have you with us back to is the IFG's historian Kath Haddon Kath it's, I'm told we've ignored a worrying trend in this election campaign, but your mum is on the case. My mother is collecting typos in election leaflets, the Brilliant. ones coming through her door. I thought you'd enjoy this, Bronwyn. Uh, she uh, brought one to... We had dinner last Friday night, and she br- actually brought the leaflet with her, having ringed the four typos. Since then, she's discovered a fifth one hidden at the bottom of it where they spelt the party's name wrong. Brilliant. Um, but and I've wanted... got a collection at home. Just <laughs> and you ran, you're, you're absolutely right. I spend my time uh, collecting IFG typos as well. Not very many of them. Yeah. And we have a special guest this week. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast Stephen Bush, the political editor of The New Statesman. You've been on some of the battle buses during this campaign. Which is the best? Um, so the best, which is also ironically the worst, is the best is the Lib Dems' real sort of big... Uh, diesel-powered battle bus, and they can go to you know far off parts of the the country with. It used to be Crystal Palaces. Is that the one with Joe Swinson's face on the oh, side? Oh, so they've both got Joe Swinson's face on the side, but there's a small electric one which can only really go in London. Mm. But it's not very fast, and because obviously, if you have a party leader's head on. Uh, your bus, so you occasionally have a thing where you're like, why is that person making the making a rude hand gesture at me? And they're like, oh, because they can't see me. They're just making a rude hand gesture at this huge head. But because you're in elect- this very slow, uh, not particularly, you know, it's basically just like the kind of coach that the school would rent to go on a school trip. You're kind of like, I'm really concerned that if they try and sort of storm this, we're not going to be able to get away. Whereas in the big Joe Swinson mobile, you're just like, wow, this is the only... You could storm through anything. Yeah, you could storm through everything. They've got like a little curtain bit where they they close it and then they sort of have 
have meetings and you're just like guys you know we can hear through the curtain right like <laughs> and he just feels very glamorous and uh, and we had because it was a very long journey back from leeds we somehow ended up getting a, a large quantity of tins from uh, the service station by so, tins you mean i saw a picture of this by tins <laughs> you mean uh, of the alcoholic i mean side? Of, of the alcoholic yeah. diet which you know kept, will keep me well served in dropping sounds, sounds really so. glamorous and just why is it better than the labor and the tories um, I think to be honest, so the main reason why it's better than the Tories bus, from my perspective, is I've been allowed on it. Um, that would make a difference, uh, which was a, a major difference. And from the from the Labour perspective, it's just better because uh, it's slightly it's got fewer seats and therefore has proper space with its tea and coffee facilities. So because obviously the nice thing about making tea on a bus is you can have tea. The scary thing is you're always worried that you know you'll end up pouring boiling water on you. Mm. But the when I've gone on labours you've really you're 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 very much having to stand at a, a uncomfortably close to the kettle whereas you, you you don't feel like you're taking your life in your hands in the same way making tea on the Lib Dem bus. Well let's talk about the manifestos because now we have them all and Labour's was 107 pages, the Lib Dems was 100, the Conservatives 64 and the Brexit Party produced this little 24-page booklet, uh, which are called A Contract with the People. What are the most important points? Kath, what came out for you? Um, I think what was actually surprising was yet yeah, the scale and as, um, or the contrast between them, as Giles has just been talking about, the Conservative one was actually quite modest. The Labour one... Obviously, modest in spending. In spending, mm. yeah, and also in the scope of, of things that they're doing. Obviously, a massive, massive focus on Brexit in there. Um, Labour's, I mean, it's an extension, effectively, of their 2017 one, uh, but, you know, further development of the policy over yep. the last sort of two years since then. Whereas the Conservatives, you've got a new Prime Minister, uh, new gov- you know, effectively a new government, a Queen's speech that was also quite constrained. So they yes, haven't very. really either. They haven't been in opposition developing policy, but also in government they haven't really been developing that much policy. All right, the, 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 the spending that you're talking about was on top of the, a lot that Theresa May had pledged for the health service and stuff. Yeah. So, Stephen, I want, I want to ask you: um, Do you think that this, as well as a battle of money, this is a battle of ideas? Um, well, the weird thing is it both is and it isn't, right? And on the one hand, you have a huge ideological gap between the two political parties. And you have essentially a situation in which they are both proposing to, in very different ways, rip up our, our economic model, right? If you work in yeah. just-in-time manufacturing, you either have a Brexit end state, which is designed to you know, trade you off for some, service, for some service-based trade deals, or you are going to have secondary picking, workplace democracy, yes. you know, employee ownership, right? This is a huge and consequential election, but for a variety of reasons, no one is. There is no direct engagement on those issues between the two parties. And that's I think, a really good way of putting it. They're yeah. really arguing for completely different things, as you said, yeah. uh, but but they're not really head to head on those and, main issues. And there has at no point in any of the television set pieces has anyone from any of the broadcasters really attempted to get them to engage on the substance of, well, look, you think this about the state, you think that about the state. And, I mean, the odd thing is, is it's not just that the, the Conservatives have a constrained manifesto. They've created a bunch of constraints. Now, there are yes. lots of reasons why Theresa May mm. had to go for an election, I think, yes. in 2017. But one of them was that she inherited a deeply stupid uh, tax lock. You're that so was right. Designed to be negotiated just away. Just explain what you mean by a tax lock. Uh, so this is a promise not to increase national yep. insurance, VAT and income tax. And I, I, I chatted to the chiefs of staff when I was in Downing Street. This was 
precisely why I think they were going for it. They were incredibly frustrated by that. And the March 2017 budget, where they tried to raise half a billion pounds on a national insurance lease, a perfectly good thing to do. And they were taken to pieces in Parliament when they had a majority, a, a small majority. And we know the Treasury was Stevens really surprised right. at, at the backlash that they got on that yes. kind of thing. Yes, and they thought we need to take off these manacles. Yeah. And they have voluntarily... And I think there are lots of things in the, the Conservative Manifesto risks in terms of its own future manoeuvrability that I think you can at least... You can make an argument that as stupid as I think the hard deadline of 2020 is, you can make an argument in terms of their electoral coalition, it's the price they have to pay. Mm. But the the tax lock... Yeah, yeah, but the tax lock is just... It's it's an, it is an insane bit of policy making. Yes, uh, at which they I think everyone seems to have forgotten because the handling of the twenty seventeen election was so bad that there were good reasons to try yeah. and escape that mandate. Let's take this question of of paying for public services and what people are really expecting to pay and whether they believe these numbers coming out. Well, so this is a really interesting point for me, and I want to ask both of you. How much do you think actually this plays out with the public? Do they get, get these massive numbers that you're talking about, size of the state, or are they more interested, like the women who were born in the 1950s, that they're going to finally get a payout if the Labour get in for these changes to uh, you know the pension age and when that happens? Is that is it those small things that actually matters them more than any of these big numbers? Yeah, I think the thing is it, it it's not just the the small stuff because obviously as, as you know the WASP pledge is huge. Oh, it's huge financially, but it's but something I mean, you can hold uh, in your hands. Yeah, the WASP right? yes. is this yeah. pension pledge. Yeah, this yeah this pledge to to reimburse women uh, born between 1950 and I want to say 1970 who've lost out because of the 1960 who've lost out because of the the falling of the pension uh, of the the rising yeah. of the pension age for women now because it's a policy you can hold in your hand now a civil servant in the treasury once said to me that they thought that you could you were only really in danger if you wasted enough money that you could imagine a football team spending it <laughs> because that was an amount of money people could understand right then. Despite the fact, and of course, then the amount of money that you know, man, you know, Arsenal spent on Pepe this this yeah. summer is trivial in the sum of government spending. But we can imagine seventy million because it quite literally is the is the cost of a footballer. Yeah. Whereas if you kind of go, oh, the Conservatives are going to spend three billion more. Labour are going to spend eighty-five billion more. Well, yeah. obviously, one of those is is a bigger number, but I think the average person's—I mean, my sense of what that actually means—is being able to hold it in your hand. Yeah, no, is, it is hard to make those numbers yeah. come across. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, let me put it all of you. I mean, it. do you think any of the parties have got to grips with this sense that people are going to have to pay more for public the pub, public services that they seem to want? Because we've had health—you know—the demand for health growing at say four percent a year for a long time, at least that GDP. The, the economy growing at about half that, you know, something has to give. It's a question of what, whether it's taxes or uh, or other public services or, or Well, whatever. the Liberal Democrats were talking about the Brexit dividend of yep. cancelling Brexit. That's that a They one would off. be spending that. Yes. Uh, uh, I, but really that means not losing. Yeah, but uh, it's always uh, the magic growth. money tree, isn't it, that they're all looking for. Yeah, we'll do a, this tax and that will bring us in a load more money and then here we'll spend it. It's a better magic money tree than some of the ones we've seen before, like the promise that corporate tax cuts would deliver even higher um, revenues, which didn't quite come right. Um, I think two of the parties have recognised it because they've got 50 to 60 billion pound increases in current spending funded by various tax rises. You could question whether they'll raise all of that, but Mm. it's a very upfront admission that we're going to need to pay more and it puts us into the European middle. So I think, yeah, blatantly they have recognised it. I think the Conservatives are still hoping to put it off until they feel more secure in government. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. And I think now, yeah, I personally think that Labour's promise that you can fund all this by only raising tax for people earning above 80 grand is nonsense. But I also think that 
when voters hear Labour are going to put up taxes, they think you're ultimately going to put it up on me as well, though, aren't you? So the very do, act do you think saying, they think that? What then? Then Labour think they'll have to raise taxes? No, do you think people? Oh yeah, people, I think yeah. I think voters think then they'll have to pay more taxes under Labour. I think they basically think that regardless of whether or not Labour's promising to pay taxes, increase taxes. But I think the second the Labour, a Labour Party goes, taxes will go up for some people. I mean, for me, the moment when I realised Ed Miliband was going to lose was I was in the Vale of Glamorgan. I was doing this fox spot, perfectly nice. Uh, you know, um, terraced house in the Vale of Glamorgan, and he said, oh, "I'm not going to vote Labour because I don't want to pay a mansion tax." And only, and and <laughs> oh and, I, and, it, and I had this flashback to I think it was 2010 in Richmond Park when yeah. it was Susan Kramer who lost. Yes, yes, uh, again, yeah. where this you had people who even in Richmond were not going to pay the mansion tax, yeah. were convinced that the mansion tax would mm. happen to them. And the Liberal Democrats are supporting an increase on basic rate. It really is the Conservatives who think you can fund this through clamping down on tax evasion. Yes. Which, I mean, if, if they've got £11 billion of tax evasion to claw back after 10 years of doing it, actually, yeah, what have they an been awful doing? lot of action yeah. on tax evasion in order to make them, his numbers add up. I really don't think there is £11 billion of easy-to-source tax evasion money to claw back. No, I think we, we, we've seen that in a lot of elections and, uh, and uh, we've, seen the, we've seen what follows, which is not a lot of success on that front. Not none, uh, but not a lot. Let me. Uh, so if that's the tax and spending, let's just turn... I was talking about the battle of ideas. Let's talk yes. um, about Labour's uh, intense concern with who owns what and yes. how much the state if owns... I... If I was to try to summarise what I think is the major difference between the Labour and the Lib Dems in particular, who are quite close to them fiscally. Between Labour and the Lib Dems. Yeah, between them. It's Labour seem to believe that ownership is magic. It's like that scene in Crazy Rich Asians where somebody comes in and buys the hotel because they're so annoyed about their treatment for a particular room. And as a result, they get the room they want. They think it's the same with every utility and so forth. Yeah, this is not the image that John MacDonald is looking no, for. But yes, he's, he's um, yeah, some sort of plutocrat who can afford... Well, there are some... There are some uh, he, they both seem to have infinite money in theory in their model but the idea that you're going to improve everything about an asset not only how productive it is but also whether it serves consumers well whether it respects environmental concerns better all of these things get magicked by having the ownership somewhere in Whitehall and also right it- it's not just the ambition of doing it, right? I think Charles is exactly right to say, one, there's this interesting commonality in the Lib Dem manifesto and the Labour manifesto in the environmental sections. The infrastructure and research spendings are essentially the same. But then Labour has this extra thing where it's just like, oh, well, by taking these into ownership, they will become more green. Now, that might be true, but when you compare the scale of privatisation in Thatcher's first term, when she privatised essentially very little, and the only really ambitious bit of privatisation was a bit of uh of what is now british petroleum yeah um in terms of the state's bandwidth to do all of those nationalizations well i am i haven't closed my mind to the idea that all of those services could be better run in state hands right yeah it could it could be the case i am however 100 percent certain that they will be worse run if they are all taken over in the f- mm. in the first term of a government that has to negotiate its own brexit deal yes. put it to a referendum like you know there's just a limit to the number of There's a limit, limit to how much you've done. And yeah. this is one of the questions that we have, isn't it, about about particularly the Labour manifesto, yeah. the sheer scale of what it is trying to do in a, in, a, in a time period. And that's before throwing in things that could be incredibly messy, like reversing universal credit. Yeah, and, and also the machinery of government chain, the departmental changes that they want to make. Those are big change so they, programs. They want to create three new own. departments. Yeah, Department for Housing. They want to change the Department of Work and Pensions yeah. and Department for uh, Women and Equality. So yeah. these are sort of 
big, big changes on their own before you even get into then the big policy areas. What about the manifestos themselves? They've come out really late in this election campaign to the point where you might ask um, whether they're, you know, the parties are really serious about them, whether they want people to read every word of them and for those to affect the, the, the shape of the, the campaign. Well, I mean... They come out at quite a crucial time for all of the parties, which is they are there. Because one of the things that I think political journalism in particular has completely failed to adjust to is we are now a democracy where a quarter of voters vote before election day. And most people who vote That's by really post important. do so when they arrive. And for most of the political parties, their manifesto launch has become their eve of poll blitz for people who vote by post. So the Conservatives, by doing their launch on uh, Sunday, meant that they got all of their, their policy announcements on the 10 o'clock news on the Sunday, which is the most viewed uh, 10 and 6 slot for on ITV and the BBC, because it's when people watch it, you know, at the end of his dark materials, at the end of whatever Bond is on. When's the um, crucial date for postal voting? So it's basically throughout this week will be when they start to arrive. And so I think even though, you know, as... As voting realignment continues to change, and I think whatever result we get in terms of the winner, uh, we will continue to have that slight shift in where the party's base of support comes from. It becomes harder for all of them to win a majority, right? We shouldn't forget that the Conservatives are on course to win by significantly more votes than Tony Blair got in yes. in 2005 and to get a majority that at best will be of equivalent size. Um, they're going to continue to to become less and less useful because there'll be documents they have to negotiate away Mm. but i think just the theater of having a thing that you've done for voters on the week that a quarter of them get their ballot papers just means that what what else would what else would the tories have done this week all right well for all those reasons they matter we've been rather talking as if a conservative majority is there uh absolutely um baked in but uh, it is going to be a long two weeks and an awful lot of things can happen a lot Now let's take a break with our regular item, Speed Data with Gavin Freegard. Gavin, hi, how are you? I um, I currently have a voice more suited to a sort of late-night husky jazz radio show, I in think. In fact, it's gone down so... a, whole, a whole set of pitches <laughs> in your own, uh, your own terms. Great. What have you got for us this week? So I'm going to start with a quiz this week. Oh, God. Indeed. Gavin is notorious for his quizzes. I am, but hope, hopefully this one is, is less notorious than some. So why do these numbers matter? 21,398, 26,193, and 28,449. Are they majority sizes for anyone? They Check. are not. Good okay. guess. Is leaving me the first one sounded blind. like about a half marathon, but then the other two aren't. <laughs> I was about, are you about to show off about your running, Gavin? But no. No, I, I, I'm that would have long, been a niche. I'm, they, I'm long past the point where I could show off about my running. I've got an idea. Are they like total number of words in manifestos? Well done, Doctor. Yes. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's I think exactly you've had an advanced tip on this. Yeah. So, oh. um, so those are indeed the the three main um, sort of Conservative, Labour, and Lib Dem word lengths. Um, would you like to guess which one is which? So, twenty yeah. twenty one thousand is the shortest. Conservative. Conservatives. Twenty eight thousand is the longest. Who would that be? I want to say Labour because they have mm. quite a lot of policies. 
I might go with the Lib Dems because I've been doing a lot of word searching over them and it does go on a long way. I'm going to go with Labour. I think that they, they've beaten the Lib Dems by some pages anyway. Points to Giles on that oh, one. It's actually okay. the Lib Dems. Um, to put things in perspective, the 26,000 word Labour uh, manifesto is roughly the same length as Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Okay. Interesting. Um, but we obviously... not, not on the same theme at all. Uh, indeed. I've right. obviously got some sound for you to listen to as well. Okay. So you can actually listen to those word counts. Um, the higher the note, the higher the word count. Uh, so this is the Conservatives. Okay. Then we have Labour. Then the Lib Dems. And to bring in the other parties, uh, we've then got the Greens, who are a bit shorter than Labour. The SNP, a bit shorter again. Clyde Cymru. And then the real outlier is the Brexit party. <laughs> and that sinister. 20, they somehow 20, managed to make it sinister. That was 24 pages with a lot of pictures, wasn't it? And very large type. They and used. fewer than 2,000 words, yeah. um, which does really stand out. Well, they didn't call it a manifesto, to be fair. They didn't. Um, we can also listen to what's happened to the word count of Labour, Conservatives and Lib Dems since 1945 oh, as dear. well. Um, so you're going to hear sort of three note flourishes, which will the first three notes will be Conservatives in 1945, Labour in 1945, then the Liberals in 1945. And then we'll go through each election right up to the present day. So have a listen. Concept that was albums. brilliant. But, that was brilliant. But, <laughs> it does sound like but, a very bad computer game soundtrack. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Gavin, thank yes. you very much indeed. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Let's turn to our big idea. How the UK will deal with the EU in the future when it's no longer part of the club. Get Brexit done, Boris's slogan, aiming to renegotiate the entire future relationship in a year. Get Brexit sorted and redo the withdrawal agreement with the EU in just three months. That's Labour's plan. It sounds simple. We know it can't be. Someone who knows why is Georgina Wright, a senior researcher at the IFG who is across everything that's going on in Brussels. She joins us in the studio and from her constant conversations with European politicians and officials can tell us what leaders across the EU are really preparing for. Georgie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. What's your big idea? Um... I mean, I think it's really interesting to to think about this general election. Um, clearly, it was called to break the Brexit deadlock, but that is very much a deadlock here in the UK. Actually, what the EU thinks of all of this and what lies ahead is the other huge obstacle, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how that's going to work out. Um, obviously, what happens next, particularly in the first couple of months, depends on the election outcome, but the EU are moving on. And they've been very clear from the start uh, that actually Brexit is important, but it's not a priority. We've just had a new commission um, that's been approved by the European Parliament this week. And the new commission president, um, Ursula von der Leyen, has quite the challenge ahead of her. Um, The European Parliament is fragmented, uh, different groups she's going to have to appease and please, and also member states who are really divided on the future of the EU. And those, the future of the EU, big plans and how she can bring 
MEP, so members of the European Parliament and member states along with her, is going to be her core concern. Brexit falls third, fourth down the list. And your big idea that you've been writing a report about now that's about to come out is about how the UK can set out to influence the European Union after it's it's left under a Conservative government, under a Labour-led government. How what, what do you recommend that the UK actually does? It feels quite far away, doesn't it, talking about how you can influence yeah, the EU um, when we haven't even left yet or, or begun negotiating our future relationship. But actually thinking about how to influence the EU now is really important, partly because we're still a member state, so we have those relationships, we know who are in the institutions, and it's good to maintain those. Um, also, you know, sit around that EU table while you still can. But actually preparing for life on the outside begins now as well. So as a big member state, essentially, we could call the shots. So um, what, what should we be doing right now? Well, we should be continuing to maintain those relationships. We should be thinking about, right, if we're no longer around the EU t- table, how do we influence EU policy? We don't have a vote. We can't really veto anything. So we're going to have to start much earlier in the process. We're going to have to go around trying to figure out what the EU is working on. So that's commission staff who are working on the legislation, but also, um, you know, diplomats, EU diplomats who are based in Brussels who would be voting on that legislation. Also, members of the European Parliament, what they're thinking, are much more kind of influencing the upstream agenda before voting takes place. Uh, Giles, what's your take on this? Do you think Britain's been good at this? Well, this is, I find this fascinating because politically, I think what Georgina has identified is an area where the British felt incredibly uncomfortable at realising they need to have a skill here. When I asked a good Europhile official a couple of years ago, he said, he told me he's come back from Brussels, I said, okay, put yourself in the shoes of the leavers. What's the best reason not to like being in the EU? He said all the lobbying, all the political skills and getting to the right person in the right corridor, getting to know the right people. Basically, we Brits don't like having to learn all of this. Now, Brussels is a massive lobbying operation. And as Georgina's just identified, we're going to need to be doing it a lot more. But the political... Uh, distaste for the idea that this is how things are actually made, the sausage machine, is something that the British have never quite dealt with. And I get the feeling that the idealists in the Conservative Party think you can do the whole thing with one big agreement and then leave it. Or you can, you can, you, you can make a case it. that you're right and then that, that, that will persuade everyone. And also, I think there is an argument to be made about if, you, if you're thinking about your own national interest, you want to kind of get the EU on board on certain things that you, yeah. can, that you can tackle together. Or actually, you think, you know what, I need the EU support on this particular policy that I'm trying to mm. achieve on the global mm. stage. Being visible, building those relationships, um, participating in events, um, at, that takes time. And yeah. all those soft power skills require investment and skill. How do other countries do it? Because like Norway, I think they have like particular emphasis on trying to make sure that they're fine finding out what new policy is happening before it's even kicked off in the EU to make sure that they're sort of aware of the, the situation. What are the challenges? I mean, this is all going to be in the report, so oh. I highly encourage everyone to read it. Spoilers. But, um, look, it really depends... Um, on your relationship with the EU. The closer the relationship, the more access you get. Um, and that is a fact. Um, if you go around talking to third countries, so third countries is the term we use for countries that are not members of the EU. Yeah. Um, it, Norway, Switzerland, for example, will have more access. They do get access to uh, working groups in the council. The council is the body where um, all the different uh, EU 27 governments sit, um, well, with the UK at the moment, but it will become 27 governments um, 
after the UK has left. Um, and they have working groups where they talk about policy before they actually vote on it. And sometimes Norway and Switzerland, for example, get invited to those. Um, but if you look at the case of Canada, the case of um, uh, the US, it really depends. And a lot of it is just lobbying. It's what you do um, as diplomats anywhere in the world. You will have uh, meetings with EU officials. You will have uh, meetings with um, MEPs, so members of the European Parliament. You'll meet with diplomats from the different countries. You'll keep tabs on the agendas. It just requires a lot of manpower. But Obviously, we're immersed in election at the moment, and so are all our politicians. But the EU, at least, um, even if you say at the beginning it's it's got its mind on other things, it, it does have a bit of time to spare for this. So they're, they're, they're busy preparing for some of this. They must have an idea of what they want to do with I mean, British negotiations coming out of this. Is, is the next British Prime Minister going to get a bit of a shock? I think what you need to remember about the EU is they are a formidable trade negotiator. Um, and that's partly because they know that their unity is their strength. So they are much more powerful in uh, negotiations with third countries than they are in negotiations amongst themselves. Um, so absolutely, they're using this time very wisely. They're setting up their mandate. They're having preliminary discussions with EU governments to try and figure out what are the issues that you really care about? What are the ones that we should you know, be mindful of? What are the flashpoints? Yeah, they are using this so time is, wisely. So is no deal at the end of 2020, say, still a possibility? Um, yes, but it's a different kind of no deal. So, of course, if you have a, at the moment, the transition, if, I mean, assuming the withdrawal agreement bill gets through. This is if so. If, if Boris Johnson if, wins this election and the withdrawal gets his bill through. through. Yep. Absolutely. Then at the moment, the transition period um, lasts 11 months until the end of 2020. Now, there is the possibility of extending that uh, transition period, but it would require all sides to agree to it. And that decision needs to be made in July at the same time as a decision around financial services and around fish. Now, there are questions as to whether or not those deadlines could be pushed. Um, but certainly that decision to extend the transition has to take place in July. And why? Why July? Because actually on the 1st of January 2021, um, the new seven-year EU budget comes into force. Mm. So if we decided not to extend that transition and we fail to negotiate a future agreement, because it's about negotiating that agreement and about passing that agreement. Yeah. Um, here in the UK Parliament, we've we've seen evidence over the past year exactly how complicated it is. But on the EU side, it will be incredibly complicated as well. And the European Parliament will want a far greater role and they will want time to scrutinise that agreement and to vote on it. And they're very divided on what they like. And then you have all the different member states who will also need to vote on it and have a veto. So there are all sorts of complications. So say we so, fail so to it, it, it is still possible. On the other hand, we have seen, haven't we, Kath, a room for movement, for compromise yeah, and, uh, from, I mean, from the EU and Boris Johnson. Absolutely. And from the UK's perspective, obviously, if Boris Johnson gets a majority and if it's a sizable majority, then, you know, a lot of this narrative then changes because he's got that buffer zone in his own party. He doesn't have to worry about cross-party, you know, coordination and all the rest of it. So whatever the pledges that he's making at the moment, he would have that room. And he also wouldn't then have to face another election, you know, and if he repeals the fixed term party. Parliament's Act, he can choose when he has it. So, right. so no deal, still the possibility, but it's just possible that you and Georgie will not be standing on College Green in the rain next November talking about a possibility of no deal and brinksmanship. Yep, you never know. You never know.
Now, fake news has become just another insult, even if it's the favourite one of the US president. But there are serious questions about how parties use media and social media, and we still haven't had that report that the government's sitting on about Russian connections. We have, though, had the uproar this week with a Conservative campaign trying to pass itself off as a fact-checking service. Our IFG colleague Hannah White spoke to Will Moy, the director of Full Fact, that's the real fact-checking service, to find out how voters can get to the truth of the matter. So, Will, what does Full Fact actually do? Full Fact fights bad information. We're fact-checkers and we're campaigners. We try to identify the causes of bad information and tackle its consequences. And how long have you been around and what happened before you existed? Uh, We launched in 2010 uh, with a cross-party board of trustees and three staff. We've grown a lot since then. Before Full Fact, I think, was before the age when the internet had really affected politics. So the equivalent of fact-checking was owning a very big library and having lots of experts in your building. The largest media organizations were capable of that, but a lot of others you know, couldn't possibly have those resources. Online now, it's possible to access all kinds of information very quickly, and it's possible to reach audiences even if you're not a large media organization. So I think the rise of fact-checking organizations with freestanding things is partly about the rise of the internet. The other side of it is lots of people complained that they couldn't trust politics and couldn't trust journalism. Back then, we were all arguing about spin. Nowadays, it's the slogan is... I hate the phrase, but fake news, post-truth politics and so on. Those concerns are still there, and people do want more honesty in politics. So, As you say, there has been a bit of a proliferation now of fact-checking organisations, certainly since 2010. How is the public supposed to work out which fact-checking organisations to pay attention to? Well, serious independent fact-checking will always link to sources. So it's not about take our word for it. It's about you can see all the reasoning, you can see all the sources, you can make your own minds up for it. Anything that says fact-check but just tells you what the answer is um, and expects you to just believe it is probably being generated by a political party or somebody else with an agenda, not by a serious fact-checker. Around the world now, there's fact-checking going on in many, many different countries, some in far more hostile Uh, context. So there's fact-checking trying to happen in Iran from outside of Iran. There's fact-checking happening across Latin America and across Africa. Collectively, we've formed something called the International Fact-Checking Network, where everybody signs up some principles about transparency, about correcting your mistakes and so on. And have you seen a change this election over previous electoral events, referendums and so on, in the way that politicians and, and political messages are being communicated? We definitely have, and I think we're beginning to see two things. Firstly, political parties testing the edges of our political culture and what people are prepared to accept in terms of lack of accountability and lack of honesty in some cases. And secondly, political parties testing the edges of our outdated election law and the fact that transparency principles that have long been accepted offline have yet to be extended to the online world. And can you give us any examples of... Um, bad practice that you've seen in terms of communications around this election? So perhaps um, the most uh, remarked on, most annoying, is the co-option of independent journalism in various ways. We all know how important journalism is as a source of accountability in public life. And when political parties issue campaign leaflets mocked up as if they are actually local newspapers, which we've seen from both the Liberal Democrat Party and the Conservative Party, they are co-opting the trust of independent journalism to get their campaign messages I've certainly had some of those through my front door. (laughs) I think a lot of people have, and the Society of Editors rightly has called it out as an abusive practice. 
We also saw during the first uh, TV debate the Conservative Party launching its so-called fact-checking um, Twitter feed, just changing the name of its Conservative Press Office Twitter feed. And similarly, that's about co-opting the independent practice of fact-checking to get your political messages across. I think all the political parties need to step back and think about the trust they will need from the public if they get elected into government and whether they're jeopardising that through the campaigning techniques they're choosing to use. Can you give us any examples of uh, things that you think Full Fact has changed in the course of this election, things where you've um, perhaps examined a claim that's been made and, and something's changed as a result? Yeah, so just yesterday, the Scottish National Party uh, launched their manifesto and before the end of the afternoon, they acknowledged that we had found a mistake in uh, their figures about the growth of exports from Scotland. So we've had political parties respond like that. The Labour Party made a mistake in its broadband calculations that it uh, released before its manifesto. By the time the manifesto was released, they corrected that error. So political parties are willing to respond when we point out mistakes. We know from experience, not just in this campaign, that it's easier when they're not the high-profile claims that they have committed to absolutely as a kind of their frontline claims. But if you can get to something before it's high-profile, you can make a difference uh, to whether it gets repeated. We also are reaching millions of people directly online and millions more through our media partnerships. So ultimately, this is about decisions every single voter makes, and a lot of those voters are coming to full factor and using our work. Do you think political parties apply a looser sort of standard to their uh, online communications than they do to their manifestos? Yes, because they're busy and it happens fast. I mean, that's inevitable. We saw what I suspect, and this is guesswork now, to be clear, we saw an example of this with the Conservative Party just before the campaign officially launched. They were running online adverts trying to plug their investment in education. And they have a figure for that investment, which is wrong. It's rolling up multiple years and ignoring inflation. The BBC had reported on the increased spend, and they had said in that article that the headline figure the Conservatives wanted to use was wrong. The Conservatives decided to advertise the BBC News article on Facebook, which you can do, and they changed the headline to use the figure they like instead of the figure the BBC um, would actually regard as trustworthy, which, again, Facebook allowed advertisers to do. That caused a row, rightly so. But my suspicion is that was somebody in the campaign just applying the party lines to something they were doing without really thinking about it. And I think that's one of the pressures of online communication. You've got a lot of people making decisions that become very high profile. It's inevitable that people will make poor judgments or mistakes along those lines. So cock up rather than conspiracy? In our experience, there is more cock up than conspiracy in politics generally, certainly when it comes to people getting their facts wrong. So we've seen all... I think the main uh, party manifestos now. Um, just to, uh, as a final question, can you tell us what would be in the full fact manifesto if you were to publish one? Well, the lovely liberating thing about being a fact checker is you're not allowed to have your own policies. Our staff are not allowed to express political opinions. And the only exception to that is areas which are directly about having informed public debate. So we supported the call from the Select Committee for Department of Culture, Media and Sport for emergency legislation before this election for transparency of online campaigning, extending the rules that say you have to put your name on offline campaign materials online, and transparency of online advertising. And the fact that that emergency legislation did not happen has, has left this election vulnerable to abuse. So it's time to update our election laws for the 21st century. Will Moy, speaking to Hannah White.
That's it for this week's Inside Briefing. In two weeks, we'll know the result of the election, probably the name of the next Prime Minister, unless that takes still more time. So what should we look out for next week, Kath? I think for me, as we get to the sort of end game of the um, election, I certainly start to get the various constitutional scenarios that people are thinking through. Obviously, a lot of talk at the moment about a majority for the Conservatives, but people are still looking out for a hung parliament. So that means bringing the Queen into it. It means lots of talk about what happens in the event of this, that and the other. So I'm waiting to see what sort of scenarios the journalists can come up with this time round. Georgie, what about you? Well, I think next week's actually a really big week um, thinking about the UK's foreign policy and future relationship, not only with the EU, but with countries around the world. Um, you know, the UK is hosting the NATO summit mm. next week. Lots Opens of... Opens on uh, Tuesday. EU, yeah, President Trump's planning to be here. Uh, President Macron, lots of people who will really be talking about the next five to ten years, actually, um, for NATO. And then also we have a new European Commission starting and a new president of the European Council, which is the grouping of... EU leaders in Brussels. So I think lots of movement. All those things and and the President Trump's arrival could indeed play into the UK election in all kinds of unexpected ways. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it depends, I guess, slightly how the parties react and whether they make a thing about it or whether actually they think this is, you know, it was on the cards already. Um, It's going to be important regardless. So we're going to treat it kind of separately. I think at this stage, the parties will be looking to use everything that comes up. With all that kicking off at the Grove Hotel in Hertfordshire, big red brick mansion. Didn't Wayne Rooney crash it? Something like that, or crash somebody's wedding, or something. I think, yeah. We don't need to go there, Giles. Yeah. What about you? Uh, for me, the big event of next week might be something that doesn't happen, which is I, I'm amazed that Boris Johnson is choosing maybe to duck the Andrew Neil interview. The part, the last election campaign, Theresa May seeming to hide from scrutiny became a real problem after a while. He seems to have this Teflon quality that means he gets away with stuff that others don't. Right, but... So Jeremy Corbyn has had one uh, one uh, round, an absolutely and, searing and, uh, one uh, with, with with Andrew Neil, and you can see why. Boris Johnson might be finding it difficult to find a date in his diary for this. Yes, you would have thought, though, I mean, former editor of The Spectator, chairman of The Spectator, they all kind of know each other. They can surely find half an hour in their diary. It's, it's an incredible sign of a lack of confidence. And well, I'm did, well, he, has, he hasn't done it yet. So no, let's, he let's hasn't. Say that's, so, one to, that's one to watch for the coming yes, week. Yes, definitely. I'd love to see whether that happens or not. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And we've also got something coming up at the IFG the week after. That's December the 9th, the Monday. Gavin, you're going to tell us about it. Yes, that's right. We've got an event called Starting a Career in Public Policy. Uh, it's an introduction to the think tank world, what a think tank does, what the Institute for Government does. I'll be speaking along with others. There'll be lots of people on hand to answer questions. So if you're in university or just starting your career, maybe you've thought about a career in public policy. Maybe you haven't. Um, please do come along or live stream to find out more. And they'll get to meet you. They will, and if that doesn't put and them lots off... Of others, <laughs> and, and, and lots of others of our colleagues. Excellent. Great, we look forward to seeing any of you there. Thanks, everyone, and thank you for listening at home. Don't forget to subscribe to Inside Briefing on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or your favourite podcast app. And remember, you can stream us on Spotify too. Do leave a review on Apple Podcasts and keep us in the running for the number one slot in the government chart. For the avoidance of doubt, as lawyers say, we really do care. We'll be back next weekend for another look at what makes government work. Check out our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can find out more on what we've discussed today and much, much more. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'll see you next week.